0: Such a fun bumper, I love that one. So, question for you. Um, Have you heard of this little game called pickleball? Anyone? Okay, raise your hand if you've ever played pickleball. I'm just curious, raise it. Come on, be proud. Okay, so quite a few of you. So I don't know if you know this, but pretty much any day of the week, there's usually a group playing pickleball over in our sports and rec. And if you'd like some more information about that, we can get, get you connected to the right people. So uh, people are obsessed with this game, like love it. They keep telling me like it's so addicting and it is, it is pretty fun, I've played it. And so I thought, okay, how did this game start? So I thought I'd research about it. So Pickleball was invented in the summer of 1965 when Joel Pritchard, who was a congressman in Washington state and went on to be a lieutenant governor, and his friend Bill Bell, a businessman, came home to Pritchard's home and found their family sitting around with nothing to do. So they adapted their old uh, badminton court, they improvised with some ping pong paddles and a perforated plastic ball, and so they first started with the net up really high, and then they discovered that the ball actually bounced pretty well on the asphalt, and so they put the net down. The next weekend, their friend Barney McCollum was introduced to the game, and the three men created all of the rules, heavily relying on badminton. But the original purpose, they said, was to provide a game that the whole family could play together. And now, in 2023, it's the fastest growing sport in America. More on pickleball later. So today's text is uh, found in Matthew chapter 20 verses one through 16 and we will go ahead and read that now. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage." And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, uh, I don't know if any of you have read one of the books uh, by Amy Joe Levine. She, we have many of her studies in our library, um, but she, is several, she has written several studies and videos and all that, and I love her. She's brilliant. She's got the, kind of this dry sense of humor, uh, but I always learned so much, and she has such a different perspective um, as, as a Jew. In case you don't know who she is, she, I have to read her title because it's very long and impressive, As a university professor of New Testament and Jewish studies, an E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter professor of New Testament studies and professor of Jewish studies at Vanderbilt Divinity School in Nashville. One of my clergy colleagues uh, had her as a professor and he said, she, she by far was my best professor I ever had and the hardest grader I've ever had in my entire life. No doubt she'd be pretty intimidating. But in her book, Short Stories by Jesus, she covers this particular particular parable, and she says, you know, this parable probably could have been uh, named a lot of different things, and these are some of her suggestions. The complaining day laborers. The conscientious, that's really hard to say. Can you imagine if Chris tried to say that right now? The conscientious boss. The last hired are the first paid. How to prevent the peasants from forming a union debating a fair wage, lessons for both management and employees, and then she references commentator Robert Fortness' title. He says it should be called The Humane Capitalist. So there's a lot of different titles, a lot of different ways to read this story, and probably a lot of different conclusions we all would make about this. See, this parable is about justice, this This parable is about equality. This parable is about the grace of God. This parable is about how we react when things aren't fair. And maybe this parable is about service too. One thing we need to keep in mind with this story and a lot of the Bible is that there are different lessons to glean from different stories, many different ways to interpret things. And as United Methodists, we take in account a lot of different sources and a lot of different things in order to enhance the way we read scripture. And it's important to do that. It's important to flex our brains, especially when we read passages that maybe are troublesome, those that are just kind of confusing, or one where you're like, well, we all gathered something different. There seems to be a lot of different lessons. Which one is right? I don't know if you've ever read a story and you said, okay, this is what the story is saying. This is the lesson. And then you read it again maybe years later and you go, how did I not see this? This is what it is saying. Scripture is great like that. So one of the most popular interpretations of this story uh, is that the landowner is God and God is offering the same to Jews and Gentiles, which I can understand would be an easy assumption to make, something that would be easy to glean from this. But scholars aren't exactly in favor of this. They're not a, at least in agreement on this. Because for one thing, we're very quick to assume that one role in these stories that Jesus tells, one character always has to be God. But they're saying maybe God's not always in moonlighting in some of these stories. But if you read it that way, if you read this story, that's not a bad thing. Because anytime the lesson or the message you receive from reading the Bible is that God loves all people equally, that everyone is invited and all people are to of God, then you're doing a-okay. But as Amy Jill Levine notes in her book, there are many different ways to interpret this story. So I first thought, <clears throat> well, we have to talk about those that showed up last because that's probably who you have the hardest time with. It's tempting to say, well, they didn't work as long. Like, literally, they did not work as long. They did not put as much effort in. There's no way that they should get paid the same as the guys that showed up super early. I mean, I'm not good at math, but I feel like that just doesn't add up. That landowner is not thinking through TurboTax at the end of the year, right? He's not thinking through all of that. But some scars have kind of wondered a few things. These are things that I found in my research. What if some of these workers were actually coming off another job and were hoping to find just a little more work to make ends meet? Or maybe they had been traveling place to place and were trying to find work and this was their last hope. I love in the story it says, well, no one will hire us. Maybe people just kept passing over them and not choosing them. It's easy to throw around the words that they were lazy or they took advantage of something, but they had no idea that they were gonna be paid the same as those that had been there all day. And who is to say they didn't work twice as hard as those who had been there all day? Kind of like how I can get more done in 30 minutes than my husband can in like three hours. It's, I don't know, it's skill I have, I guess. But I think when we look at this story and you think maybe they had already worked several hours, and they're just trying to make ends meet? Would the story change for you? Or what if those first workers were really lazy and they worked slow and it was only because the ones that came at the very last hour that the work was actually able to be finished? Does that change the story for you? I don't know, sometimes when I have that idea, I'm like, gosh, I'm so grace-filled, I'm so compassionate. But really, when I read this story, I'm still pretty frustrated with those that came first and don't get paid more. I mean, it's ridiculous. And I see that in today. We get really frustrated with things that may come easy for some, or we think that some people get rewards or perks for not doing as much, or we think some people are taking advantage of systems. But maybe we need to take into account there's more to the story. Again, as I kept reading, as I kept researching, some scholars said maybe some of those workers that hadn't been picked is because they were older. And so some landowners were like, well, they can't work as hard, so I'm going to pass over them. Or maybe there's people that were limited physically, and so people, again, didn't choose them. Or what if the last to show up were a different race or a different culture or religion and were constantly paid a different wage or cheated out of their wage or simply just not hired? How does that change the way you view this story? There's lots of questions to ask when we read this. But on the other hand, when I read this story in terms of serving, I do think, are there missed opportunities for how we can participate in the kingdom work. Like maybe there is something to be said about reporting early. Now, we're not gonna be punished because we showed up late, but I do think about how do we use our time before we show up to participate and serve as well? Is that important? I do think there's something about leading, there's something about showing up first, giving your all no matter what the reward and the end is. And so I think, are we devoting some chunk of our time, of our life, to showing up first, to being the first to sign up, the first to say yes? And again, God's love and grace is not like a pie that someone can take a bigger slice and so there's less for you and me. That's not how God works. But I do think, in practical terms, when we choose to follow Christ, when we take vows of membership, serving and showing up is a vital part of our discipleship. And so when there are volunteer requests or you see a need that maybe as a staff we don't even see and you say, hey, what if we did this? Or yes, I wanna do that, sign me up, I'm there. What if we made that a priority? Christ United Methodist has long been known for being a, a church full of people that want to serve. I mean, in pickleball, it's not very fun if no one ever serves to you, you just kind of stand there. And so showing up and serving is an important part of our commitment to Christ. And honestly, I think there's something so holy about being ready and willing. so are we ready and are we willing? So yeah, part of me is gonna applaud the people that showed up early to work, but I'm gonna try my best not to judge those who showed up last because there's more to it. And why is this a good discipline? Why is this maybe a better way to read this story? It's because when I look out, I see that we're constantly stacking up our accomplishments, our wealth, our time, our gifts, and so we kind of grow arrogant and we boast, and somewhere along the line, we put others down and we think we are better than we are. So then we think we we should be given more. We're better, we deserve more in the end. I mean, I can tell you those that greet and open our doors for the early service are not complaining or saying the greeters at 11 are lazy. Like Martha and Verlene, who are our faithful ushers at 945, they're not complaining like that 11 o'clock, oh, they're so lazy. No one says that. And so this story challenged me to think, okay, what does this say about loving one another? How does, how does this challenge me to view my fellow brother and sister? How does this story tell us about loving our neighbor? How does this story move us to look at serving rather than gaining something? Because the world is always going to tell us to compete against one another. In the book of Acts and in James and other places throughout the Bible, there are big portions of scripture devoted to not playing favorites, that you shouldn't treat people less than yourself, that you shouldn't value certain groups over others. Christ came to equalize things because we had kind of grown so boastful and arrogant and competitive to one another. We were and are obsessed with ranking ourselves. And so there's this power in knowing that zero to zero, that we are the same And so when I read this story that everyone contributed something, it changes the whole story for me. I'm no longer frustrated at those who showed up late and got the same pay, because it's not really about the pay. It's about how everyone has value and everyone has something to offer. It's having the invitation that everyone can show up and do something. It's this ongoing invitation that all are invited no matter who they are, what they can do, how fast or slow they work, or how much time they have. Everyone in this story in the vineyard helped work toward a goal. There clearly was too much work for that first batch of workers and they wouldn't have finished the job unless more people had showed up. Again, everyone had value and it could not have been accomplished unless everyone was there. Now, I can't talk about serving uh, unless I talk about some people in our church that serve so faithfully, almost weekly, that you may never know about. So I want you to look uh, in the pew in front of you. On the back, you see there's like cards and brochures and stuff. So in the front row, I'm just gonna grab it. You may notice that there's always stuff in your pew and you're like, hmm, I wonder how it gets there. Well, let me tell you. There's this group called the Pew Crew and we never know when they show up. They're like church mice. They just come in and they do their work and they leave. They make sure that our pews are clean, they make sure there's pens and pencils and the pencils are sharpened and that there's a checking card and giving and whatever else we need them to put in. They do it. After the 845 service, I actually had someone say, you know, last week, his name's Larry, he sits in the back corner and he says, last week I noticed my checking card only had two two more pieces on it. And this morning it was full again. I'm like, I know, it's magic. The pew crew is amazing. And then of course our greeters and our ushers that serve week after week, they are incredible. Our communion servers that come and they serve. You know, sometimes we have someone that goes and buys bread on Saturday and then they organize and get everything prepped for communion for Sunday. It's amazing because up here, We don't have to be stressed about, I hope someone's at the door. I hope that someone's handing out a bulletin. All of you make this, all of this happen. Or those that serve at the Get Connected booth. I know people think, I can never do that. I don't know enough about this church. Yeah, you do. And if you don't know the answer, we'll help you find the answer. But being a greeting face, I can't tell you how many first time visitors go and you are such a good um, engagement, uh, a good invite back. The way that you greet them and talk to them often makes them come back. So you are a vital part. Or you could work at the Jeep and check in kids. Who doesn't wanna see cute kids on Sunday morning? You can help Meredith by checking in kids or getting them to their classroom. Do you have to have big muscles to do that? No. Do you have to have uh, a degree in theology to do that? No. You just have to smile. Or those that work in our library. They do so much, y'all. They have to wrap books in the the special plastic and they have to get the cards and there's labels and there's all these things. They're constantly organizing and processing books and thinking about what should we add to our library. And they make displays and they put on a bookmobile for um, our, our preschool once a month so kids from the preschool can check out books. Those that make cookies for memorial service receptions and they set up the tables and they have punch, they are such a, uh, an example of Christ's love to those that are grieving. Those that rock our sweet babies in the church. I mean, personally, of course, I'm very, very thankful there's people there to love on my children. And those that teach year after year, Sunday, a Sunday school class or volunteer with children or youth, Or those that sign up and teach, well, I can only do a two-week class. Great, that's awesome. And then those on worship committee that come up and set up flowers or our altar for special services. I mean, that's just a fraction of what people do. But you can be part of that and more. We have so many opportunities to serve, whether you take the first shift or the last shift, whether you can spend 20 minutes or you can give us multiple hours. From serving day that happens next Saturday, we would love to have you to participate in that. You have something to offer. I'm gonna be bringing my seven-year-old daughter and we're gonna spend the morning serving together. Or you could be part of our Sunday hospitality team. You can greet, you can hand out bulletins, you can check in kids at the Jeep, you can be at the bottom of the stairs and hand out bulletins. You can help make coffee. You can be at the Get Connected station and say hi to people. Or, I don't know if you knew this, this, we are hosting annual conference in June and we're gonna be having thousands of people here. And we have multiple different shifts of all levels. You can sit at a snack table, you can help usher, you can help um, serve people food. There's so many opportunities to serve and we simply can't do any of this Unless we have your help. You are a part of ministry. You, each and every one of you, are part of the ministry that happens here. And all of us have this call to live into serving. Okay, so pickleball. When I get to witness groups playing pickleball at Sports and Rec, I love it. There's such an energy and such a joy there, especially at beginners' pickleball because some of them come in and they're so nervous to play because they think, oh, I'm not going to be good at this, or I don't know, I haven't played, or I've got a bad knee, or whatever it may be. But when the regulars are like, yeah, jump in, let me let me teach you. Yeah, you can do that, yeah. Okay, Now now switch, or I've been playing too long, make sure this person gets to play in, or have you played with that person? There's something so beautiful about the way that they they serve and they receive and and they get to play with different teammates and the way that they just celebrate one another. The feeling of pickleball is that everyone can play, everyone contributes, and I love that. So this story that we read today and the game of pickleball has a lot to teach us about what it means to serve, to be a good teammate, and how to value one another. And next week we will continue in the book of Matthew and learn a little bit more about what it means to be last and why we are called to service. I hope you'll come back and join us, amen.